Good evening. Hi, my name is Teresa Edmonds, and I work out of the Programs and Publications Department here, and we're responsible for COMPASS, which is our calendar of news and events. We're so happy that you are here, and we're especially happy that uh, Mr. Davis is here this evening. Um, and on behalf of Dr. Hayden, unfortunately, she's not able to be with us, and so I'm saying welcome again. And so I'm going to turn the program over to Ron. Thank you again. Thank you, Deb. Well, I want to welcome all of you. My name is, is Ron Shapiro, and uh, I have a, uh, the good fortune of being a friend of Ken Davis's, uh, an, an amazing human being. Uh, he's not only a friend, but he's an advisor. Uh, I've tried my hand at a, at a few books. Uh, haven't sold five million, but, but uh, tried my hand, and I'll never forget I was writing a book on the power of preparation. It was one winter day. Snow was on the ground, and I was grappling for a, a title. You know, I wanted this book to be successful, and in, in the how-to book world, you you got to have catchy titles. And I, I turned to this guy over here, and he said, what about Dare to Prepare? And Dare to Prepare became the uh, title of the book, and it's the first time I ever got on the New York Times bestseller list, thanks to the ultimate New York Times bestseller author. Um, I gave him a reward. I took him to a Ravens football game. Now, it's a chancy thing to take a Patriots and New York Giants fan <laughs> to a Ravens football game. But uh, Ken nevertheless went, and I will say this, uh, he's home tonight because he's now a Ravens fan, and certainly his wife is. And then uh, he came back for, he's come back on more than a few occasions for book launches that I've done. He's such a good friend to come down from New York. And I'm talking to my best friend, Larry Gibson, one day, and I say, hey, Larry, I'm launching the book tonight. We're going to go out to dinner afterwards. And there's this, this friend of mine and, and his wonderful wife, who's also my friend Joanne Davis, who's here tonight, and she is the ultimate advisor when it comes to books, uh, a, a wonderful editor and agent in the field. And His name is Ken Davis, and immediately Larry went, Ken Davis? Oh, he's my favorite author, right, Larry? Absolutely. By the way, what is the name of that Indian maiden? Who saved John Smith at uh, life at Jamestown? It's Pocahontas, right? Everybody, isn't everybody knows that? I thought you'd say that. Oh, okay. But her name really was Matawaka, and she didn't really save his life. That was a merely a friendly ceremonial threat. Well, I think you're interrupting me. But even if you are, you know, maybe I don't know much about history, Larry. Ken Davis. Okay. <laughs> well, what is the name of that sea that the Israelites had crossed you as they were getting out? Here you go again, trying to test me and embarrass me publicly. What's the sea? Who said that? Thank you, the Red Sea, Larry. Oh my gosh, another one? It was the Sea of Reeds, R-E-E-D-S. Well, I guess I don't know much about the Bible either. Another book. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think you'll get this one. What planet is closest to Earth? Oh, 
Well, you know, I think of those little things with all the little... Mars, thank you. Mars, Mars, Larry. Sorry. You're still pushing me. It's Venus. Oh, my heavens. Well, I guess Venus, he says. I, I mean, the guy, he's trying to embarrass me. Well, Larry... Is the moon a planet? Well, no, the moon is not. But, Garrett, Larry, I guess I don't know much about the universe either. That's right. That's right, but I know who does. Ron, let's see if you can get this one. What vegetable did people believe to be poisonous until President Thomas Jefferson believes proved that it was safe? I have no idea. I'm sick of this stuff. Tomato. And I learned it in Don't Know Much About the President. Is that another Ken Davis book? Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. Okay. How about a geography? Larry, don't know much about geography either. Okay. <laughs> oh, come on, Larry. Stop. I don't know much about the Civil War. I don't know much about mythology, space, or about any of these things that Ken Davis writes about. Is that your point? Well, okay, then let me talk about Ken Davis for just one more minute. Because I do know about Ken Davis. And if it's okay with all of you, I'll just share just a couple of more seconds on my, my good friend. He's a prolific writer. Look at all the books and look at the little handout. You'll see that books that touch people in, in all different areas, including children today, with unbelievable material that he puts out for them as well. Um, not only is he a prolific writer, but he's got readers. And in today's world, that's a real challenge. In fact, the readers are, are unbelievably significant in numbers. He came out with the first Don't Know Much About History, and he was on the New York Times bestseller list, correct me if I'm wrong, for 35 consecutive weeks. Oh, I will correct. Okay, more? More? Uh, oh, if I'm wrong. Uh, well, you always do, because Larry's taught you. And if you put together his Don't Know Much About History books and his Hidden History books, get this. He has sold going on 5 million copies. That's unbelievable. I'd have to live 5 million lifetimes to do that. And then you name the TV or radio broadcast, you turn it on, whether it be CBS Morning News, whether it be NPR and, and All Things Considered, whether it be Fox and Friends or CNN, and there's Ken Davis. But what I really admire is that he's taken technology and taken telecommunications and he's taken it through his webinars into schools for kids, so he's reaching them. Pick up the New York Times, you'll find a Ken Davis piece. Pick up the Smithsonian Magazine, you'll find a Ken, David, a Ken Davis piece. And pick up other uh, journals and newspapers, and you'll see pieces there. And Amazon.com dubbed him the king, the king of no. Me, I dub him a beautiful human being, a very special person. And today, joined by Joanne, he's here to talk with us about the Hidden History of America at War, Untold Tales from Yorktown to Fallujah. And the book is here tonight. If you want to get it later on, the Ivy Bookstore has it outside. My friend, Ken Davis. And Larry, don't do that again. Well, well clearly, we have to take this show on the road. 
Ron and Larry and me, the the three stooges. Before getting into into what I wanted to talk about, the the heart of my book uh, tonight, first of all, thank you so much. Ron has become such a a dear friend and mentor. It's uh, beyond a thrill and an honor to stand here tonight after he's spoken. So um, if I'm blushing, uh, it's, it's because I, I feel it. And I did meet uh, Larry a few months ago, I guess it was, and we had such a lovely time. It feels like we're you know, old friends who just met for the first time. But, um, so it's, it's a great, great honor and pleasure and thrill to me to have these two men introducing me tonight. Whenever I get ready to speak, because I am so focused about uh, on American history and the lessons that we learn from history. One of the lessons I always think about first is the fact that a man named Edward Everett once got up and gave a speech for two hours. It was beautiful. It was flowery. People loved it. People adored it. The same day in the same place, Abraham Lincoln spoke for two minutes. Which Gettysburg Address do we remember? Um, I think that's an important lesson. You can say an awful lot in two minutes. It's a lesson that more politicians and preachers should learn. But um, but I probably won't speak for Edward Everett's two hours, nor will I speak for Lincoln's two two minutes. But I do want to talk a little bit about my new book. But before I do that, I want to briefly talk about two things that are very important to me that come together here tonight. The first of all is the library. I grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. Gee, what does that sound? Why does that name sound familiar? Mount Vernon, New York is a small city, just out, a small town just outside of New York City, a suburb, really more extension of New York in many ways. And uh, growing up there, we had no bookstores, but we had a magnificent library, one of the Andrew Carnegie libraries. And the, I, the library was truly a place that was a sacred place for me. We went at least once a week, in addition to the fact that we had the bookmobile. Was there a bookmobile in Baltimore in, back in the day? What a wonderful thing. I mean, somebody should really bring back the idea of a bookmobile, don't you think? Um, so the idea of going to this place and the, the library we had was truly one of those spectacular stone kind of marble steps going up. So you had the sense that you were walking into a sacred place and it was a, a, almost a worshipful place to me. And I remember the day with such excitement that I graduated from being in the children's library where you had one card to the adult library where you go up this grand set of stairs into the big adult circulating room and it was just so special. And that library had so much to do with my growth as a reader, and I believe that that has a lot to do with my growth as a writer. I was a kid who loved books. I remember having a, my bed filled with books. I remember books that I read time and time again, a book called 60 Second Biographies. I'm pretty sure that were one-minute biographies. I must have read that book a hundred times until it fell apart. Um, a series of books of young, famous Americans as they were young people, just giving me the sense that history was about real people, and that's what I've always focused on in my work. But um, I never had the idea, as much as I loved reading and as much as I loved books, that there was a person behind those books and that you could become a writer. It was kind of as foreign to me as becoming a, a rocket scientist or an astronaut, which was a pretty big big deal when I was a kid growing up, being becoming an astronaut. 
But becoming a writer, it just didn't seem, I'd never met a writer. No one had ever visited the library. No one had ever come into my schoolroom. So it was a foreign idea to me for a long time. And then I'm not supposed to tell this story, but I can't help it because so many people are interested in how did you become a writer. I was working in a bookstore, half, kind of halfway in and out of college. A great opportunity to work in a bookstore. You're surrounded by books. You're thinking about books. You're learning books. You're reading them all the time. And I had done some writing in college, but again, not seriously thinking about it as a career. And a young woman who was working in the bookstore with me read some of my work from college. And she said to me, true story, this is not, uh, not, not the apocryphal version. She said to me, you know, you're wasting your time selling books. You should be writing them. And she was so smart, I married her. <laughs> true story. And my wife, Joanne, is here tonight. And she will, she will uh, kill me for telling that story, but it's, I can't help it. It's too good not to tell. The second part of the story is that a few years later, I was looking around for a subject for a book to write. I had written one book about the publishing industry. Um, but I was looking for a, a new subject, subject. And she said to me, you love American history. Why don't you write about it? So that was the birth of Don't Know Much About History. I told you she was a very smart wife. Um, <clears throat> the second place that's really important to me that I want to mention just briefly is Baltimore itself. Um, my father was a Baltimorean, and we didn't come and visit very often, but he always talked to me about it so much. It was a place that was very close to his heart. This is where he grew up. This is where he, uh, he spent his childhood. And he had a very dear uh, maiden aunt who lived here. And she, I remember very clearly in all my meetings with her, was a real lover of history. And we would talk about places like Fort McHenry. And she gave me one of the first books I ever had about Fort McHenry. And I remember very clearly the last day I spent with my dad in Baltimore was my 18th birthday. That maiden aunt had passed away. We had to drive down in a day from New York to empty out her little Baltimore apartment and drive it back, all the stuff back to New York. This was on my 18th birthday. Not exactly how you want to spend your 18th birthday, but I did it. And I remember very clearly that my dad then that night took me to a bar because it was 1972 and you could still buy a drink in, uh, when you were 18 in 1972. So my dad from Baltimore took me to a bar and bought me what he thought was my first beer. Uh, it was at least my first legal beer. The reason I remember that 18th birth birthday, apart from the connection to coming to Baltimore and my dad, who was a true lover of history in his own way, and I credit him a great deal with, with my own love for history because when I was a kid, our summer vacations were really spent uh, taking an old army surplus tent, some old army surplus mummy bags, they were called. We'd throw them in the back of the car and we'd go off to places like Lake Champlain in upstate New York or uh, Gettysburg or Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. And we, these were our camping trips for our, our summer vacations. And I remember from the time I was a small boy, five years old, a little bit later, nine years old, understanding that history is not something that happens in books. History is something that happens to real people in real places. 
And I didn't know it at the time, but I was becoming a historian through that. And I knew that when I got to tell history and tell stories of history, I wanted to retain that sense of telling the real stories of real people. And that's what I've tried to do in my books. But back to that moment that I turned 18 that day in 1972, because that does connect back to the subject at hand, the hidden history of America at war. Obviously, when I turned 18 in 1972, there was something else that I had to be concerned about besides getting um, a, a drink. <laughs> that was the draft. Um, there was draft beer, and there was the draft, of course. Um, and one was a lot more serious than the other. This was, of course, the era in which the draft had switched. It was in the midst of Vietnam, switched from the old system where there were a lot of exemptions to the so-called lottery. And I remember, like yesterday, that night where we had to sit and wait while they spun that big barrel around. But it wasn't a prize that you were hoping for. It was the right kind of lottery number because that would determine whether you might be called up or not. Fortunately, when I think back to that um, that day, um, I had a high draft number. Uh, Uncle Sam may have wanted me, but I, want, I wanted no part of him. But for all of my disdain for Vietnam and the military, I never lost my respect and my fascination for the stories of men in battle. Partly because my father, who I've spoken about a little bit here, was one of those men who went off in 1941 and enlisted, and he spent the war years in North Africa and Italy. He didn't talk about that a lot when uh, I was growing up, and I regret that now, but I knew that this had been an, an extraordinary experience for him. Um, this all comes back to me because just a few weeks ago, we had two rather extraordinary anniversaries in America that coincided. One was the 70th anniversary of the end of the war in Europe, VE Day. I was surprised at how little attention was paid to VE Day here in America. There was a flyover, some old planes in Washington, but not really the kind of attention I expected. Last year for the anniversary of D-Day, for instance, there was much more media attention. And I thought it was really surprising that the most significant event, perhaps, in modern history, the end of the Third Reich, didn't get as much attention here as it should have. That coincided, of course, with another anniversary, the fall of Saigon 40 years ago, the end of the war in Vietnam. So these two events, the end, of, the end of my father's war and the end of the war that affected me, really fell close together. And it really made me think a lot about what happened in those 30 years between 1945 and 1975, because clearly America changed in that time. We changed in the way we think about going to war. We changed in the way we think about who goes to war and who fights our wars. And that's why I've written this book to a large degree. The Hidden History of America at War simply tells the story of six battles in the course of American history, from Yorktown in the American Revolution to Fallujah in Iraq. And just, just in case you needed to understand that having a sense of history matters today, we certainly got a pretty good lesson in that this week from potential candidate Jeb Bush. The war in Iraq is front and center in the campaign again, and the narratives that we're already hearing are beginning to show how the 
way we tell war stories is so important to the politics of the present. And that's certainly part of what this book is about. But it starts with the Battle of Yorktown, and I'm going to focus briefly on that story because um, it has a lot to do with what's going on in America today as well. As I mentioned, there are six stories in this book. The first one is the Battle of Yorktown. You may have learned when you were in school, as we all were supposed to, that George Washington won the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. You may not know the details behind that. The fact is that he couldn't have done it without a French navy and a French army, largely left out of my school books when I was growing up. And he also couldn't have done it without the participation of a large number of African-American patriot soldiers, also left out of my school books and left out of the patriotic paintings that we all grew up with. About one in five of Washington's soldiers was an African-American. Washington, of course, did not want to enlist black soldiers when the revolution began. When he took over the army in 1775, he forbid any more enlistments of blacks. As his manpower needs grew during the war, he had to change that policy, and he was very happy to find that some of the African Americans who were signing up and fighting proved to be some of his most capable fighters, including a group called the 1st Rhode Island Regiment. I never heard about them when I was growing up. Their story is in the story of Yorktown, because they were there on that October night when Alexander Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette and another fellow, a fascinating man named John Lawrence, decided that they were going into these two little British outposts to take them over and take one more step to winning the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. So there were African-American black patriots there that night. Of course, it led to Washington's victory. Washington's victory was the victory for America. America had won its freedom. America had won its liberty. But what was the first thing that George Washington did after the Battle of Yorktown? This is another story the school books leave out, and it's one that I do tell in this book. Part of the surrender agreement that George Washington signed with the British in September, October of 1781 was that the British would return all the property then held by the garrison. Now that property we all know now was specifically 6,000 or 5,000 African Americans who had gone over to the British in the hopes of achieving their freedom. This was, a again, a story my school books left out. But what more poignant story at the moment of George Washington's greatest triumph, the moment at which America achieves its dream of liberty and freedom, thousands of people are forced back into bondage. They include 17 people from Washington's Mount Vernon plantation who had escaped a few months earlier and about 24 people from Thomas Jefferson's plantations who had also either escaped or been taken captive by the British. This is the story of the great American contradiction, as I call it, the contradiction between men fighting and working for liberty, equality, freedom, yet completely dependent upon the system of slavery. And obviously, that story is important to us today. A lot of people would like to think, and I hear it all the time, well, slavery is something that ended 150 years ago. That's in the past. We have to move on from that. 
we cannot move on from slavery, especially when we're talking about our military history, because it's so interwoven with every aspect of American history and politics and government and law from the beginnings of the Republic and way, way before that. And that's why I feel it's so important to tell this piece of this story in The Hidden History of America at War. The other uh, interesting aspect of the story of Yorktown, and um, I'm going to just speak for a few more minutes and then uh, take some questions on this or any other subjects that you might be interested in. But the other aspect of the story of Yorktown that caught me so surprisingly was that Washington ordered that attack on that October night with what he called cold steel. In other words, he told Lafayette and Hamilton and Lawrence to go into that attack without firing their guns, just to fix their bayonets. He wanted silence. In 2004, in the Battle of Fallujah, which is the last battle I describe in this book, the Marines went into that city with fixed bayonets. So more than 200 years later, between Yorktown and Fallujah, men were still fighting war the same way. And I found that to be a kind of fascinating connection that ties this whole history together. And that's what the book really is about. Who fights our wars? How we go to war? Why we go to war? Should we go to war? A long time ago, right after the revolution ended, Benjamin Franklin wrote to a friend, there's never been a good war or a bad peace. I thought about that a lot as I was writing this book, wondering if if Franklin is right. Certainly, we've seen a lot of bad wars in our time. Have there been any good wars? Well, you can certainly make the argument there have been. The stories I tell in this book go from the revolution, perhaps a good war, to the civil war, also perhaps a good war. There's been a lot of debate about that. Could we have solved the problem of slavery in America without the cost of 800,000 people, 2% of the population? You realize today that would be about 7 million people dying. That gives you some perspective. I think a lot about this and, and write and talk a lot about this because Memorial Day is coming up, obviously, this weekend. Uh, Memorial Day, as you probably know, was born out of the American Civil War. But what many people don't know is that Memorial Day was very, very divisive when it was first announced in 1868 by a Union general named John Logan because he specifically said when he calls for the first Decoration Day, a day to go out and decorate the graves of fallen soldiers, that these men had fallen to emancipate a race in chains. Clearly, he knew and thought that the war was fought over slavery. Well, not everyone liked that idea, obviously. Memorial Day, or Decoration Day as it was originally thought of, was considered a northern holiday. Or even accounts of people closing off Arlington Cemetery so that no Confederate families could enter on Memorial Day. Confederate states began to establish their own memorial or decoration days. So even in this day, when we think that we are honoring our most solemn duty to recognize the sacrifice of those who gave the last 
full measure of devotion, as Lincoln said in that great Gettysburg Address. Even on, in that, we found a way to argue and be divisive. Of course, Memorial Day to now, today is, is much more recognized as a, a way to honor all those in all of America's wars. Um, unfortunately, too many people think of it as a day to honor a swimsuit sale on the first barbecue of the weekend, of the summer weekend, but um, that's a separate question. So um, I, I was starting to tell the story of which stories I tell here. So American Revolution, the Civil War, a good war. Then on from there to the Spanish-American War. I briefly will tell you that what struck me about in this battle was the fact that there was something called the water cure. Never heard of it myself. It was a form of torture that involved pouring water down a prisoner's throat. The, the, the Americans in the Philippines in 1898 and 1900, around there, learned that technique from the Spanish, who had been doing it since the time of the Inquisition. Of course, it sounds awfully like something we are familiar with from modern times, waterboarding. And that's why we need to understand our history. These things aren't something that just happened today. We've seen this, we've done this. By the way, this is not something that I discovered by doing some incredible amount of historical research. This is actually a scandal that reached all the way to the Roosevelt White House. And there were Senate hearings about the water cure and civilian atrocities in the Philippines. So we like to talk about learning from history, but we don't always do a very good job of it. I move on from there to a story about the Battle of Berlin. Also a story left out of my school books for a very specific reason. The fall of Berlin was left to the Soviet Red Army. And for a very, very long time in this country, what the Soviets, the Russians did in World War II was left out of our good war narrative. It's really interesting. I mentioned the uh, VE Day celebrations being kind of quiet here. Between 300 and 500,000 people marched through the streets of Moscow on VE Day in what they call a celebration of the Great Patriotic War. Very different perspective on the war. Many of them carried pictures of the men who had died. The Russians lost 27 million people in World War II. We have to think about that for a minute. We have to think about how that affects their perspective on what they see. And that isn't to excuse or forgive behavior, but it is to try and understand it. The last two stories are much more modern, more contemporary. The story of Hue in Vietnam comes during the Tet Offensive, probably a lot of you uh, remember it well as I do, and especially for the night that Walter Cronkite came back to America from Vietnam and told us that we were in a quagmire. Walter Cronkite had been in the New York offices of CBS the day that the teletypes started to clatter, and he said, what the hell is going on? I thought we were winning this war, because he had been told that for so long by t the top people in the Pentagon. So the story of Hue is partly a story about how Walter Cronkite and other reporters covered the war in Vietnam and how the reporters became almost as important to the story as the soldiers were. And the last story, as I mentioned, is Fallujah, where those Marines go in in 2004 to take back this hard scrabble Iraqi city, uh, a kind of industrial wasteland kind of city that most Americans had never heard of until the day that four Americans were killed there. 
I'm sure you remember the pictures of two bodies dangling from that bridge. It was a ghastly sight. What most Americans don't know, even then and certainly not now, is that those four soldiers, those four men, those four Americans were not soldiers. They were private security contractors working for a company that now is unfortunately much better known than it was back then, Blackwater. Those four men who worked for Blackwater went into Fallujah on a very, in a very reckless way and really set off a ticking time bomb that the Marines had to answer. And so I tell the story of what happens in Fallujah and, of course, what happens in Iraq after the Battle of Fallujah. And I wish I could say, well, that one is over, but obviously it's not. We're still fighting it to some respect, although we are not there any longer. But we're fighting over it, as you know from the headlines. And that's why it's so important to learn the lessons of these stories. That's why I've come back and told these untold tales. We never can know about a good war or a bad peace unless we know the truth about what we've done throughout our history And we can do that and still honor the courage and sacrifice and duty and patriotism of the men, most of the men that I talk in this book, at least. This is pre-women serving as widely as they do now. But that's the real reason I write and the real reason I think we need to study history, not to know the dates and the dates of the battles and the speeches and the presidential decisions, but to understand who fights our wars, why we go to war, and whether we can avoid going to war so that in future Memorial Days we won't have so many to remember. Now, I said I like questions, and I hope I can answer as many as you have tonight. And thank you all for coming and for your attention. Thank you. I I think that... um, you need to use that microphone there if you want to ask a question so we can record this. Thank you very much. Very good presentation. We have another anniversary coming up later this summer. It will be the 70th anniversary of the dropping of the two atomic bombs over uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Yes. Are there any facts, even 70 years later, from that very decisive time in 1945 that you know that we don't know in the history books about because that affected not only the whole country overseas, but it, a lot of people still that survivors even today still feeling the effects of it. Is there anything we need to know that's not in our history books? An excellent question. I'm glad you asked it because yes, there is. <laughs> um, and curiously enough, it's it's in the story of the Battle of Berlin as well as in the story of Vietnam. One of the questions I ask is why. Dwight Eisenhower allowed Joseph Stalin to take Berlin. You would have thought that this was a big prize that the Americans would have wanted as well. Eisenhower actually thought it wasn't uh, so important, and he was, and he realized that Stalin's Red Army had a million troops much closer, and there was no reason for him to go into Berlin. So he said, and Stalin kind of played a a little uh, a, a game of. Uh, hide-and-seek and sorts, and he said, oh, we don't care about Berlin either, but he was desperate to get there. He wanted the Soviet red flag to fly over the Reichstag on May 1st, the international holiday of socialism, and it did. 
Um, Hitler knew that the Red Army was coming, certainly one of the reasons that he chose to commit suicide just before they arrived. But what Ike didn't know in making that decision was that there was a Manhattan Project. That's right. I was surprised to learn this. He didn't know about the atomic bomb until Potsdam, after Berlin had fallen. Stalin, of course, knew all about the Manhattan Project because of espionage. Stalin also had an atomic program of his own. He also knew about the German program to develop atomic weapons. And he knew that in Berlin there was a laboratory where German scientists had uranium, and he wanted both, the uranium and the scientists, and he got them. So the story of the Battle of Berlin, in a way, is the beginning of the story of the Cold War and the atomic confrontation, and that's one of the stories I tell. To your immediate question about surprises about the um, the dropping of the atomic bomb, one small one is that uh, Eisenhower was very much opposed to the idea. He did not like it once, once he learned about what the bomb was. He was later given the opportunity to use the bomb in Vietnam uh, to assist the French when they were under uh, attack in the famous Battle of Dien Bien Phu and he decided not to. He said, no, we can never use that weapon, especially against an Asian country again. Um, so, so those are some of the, some, some of the kind of intrigues about the atomic program and the development of the the Cold War confrontation that came out of it. Um, there will there are less surprises about the actual dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I've written about that in my other book, especially don't know much about history, um, because apart from the obviously Truman wanted to end the war and use the uh, the bombs to do that, um, it's clear that. This confrontation with the Soviet Union was on the horizon, and he wanted to use these bombs also as a kind of shot across the bow to Stalin, that we have, we have this weaponry and we are not afraid to use it. So the end of World War II and the incredible devastation it brings upon the Japanese is also the beginning of the true Cold War confrontation over the use of atomic weapons that is going to dominate every decision that's made in America for the next 50 years afterwards. So those are the ways I, I discuss that, um, that issue in this book. Thank you for the question. Next. Um, so my name is Alec. I'm 22 years old. Um, and so I like what you said about how if we don't actually learn from history, we're going to keep doing it. And you say you don't think we've learned from history as well as we maybe should have. And I really agree with you because among people my age – you know, people maybe have seen the videos on like shows like Jimmy Kimmel or like Bill O'Reilly about reporters go and they ask somebody a basic history question they don't know. That really is a reality. Um, you know, I have friends, many friends don't know what the Trail of Tears is. Um, probably couldn't tell you what two Japanese cities the atomic bombs were dropped on. Don't know anything about our involvement in the Philippines. We don't know. So, you know, it's funny to me because let's say in 50 years, the U.S. president says we need to have a forced migration, you know, from. Georgia to Oklahoma or from wherever to wherever, people aren't going to know because they don't yeah. know. So my question is, how do we reinvigorate young people to get involved in history again? Because they're not. They learn about it in 11th grade and they forget about it. And they never have to think about it again. So how do we go about doing that? Yeah, it's a really good and 
Yes, I'll repeat the question. Basically, he's asking how do we get people more interested in the study of history, especially young people, if we have this idea that we, we have to learn history so we don't make the same mistakes over and over again. There's another part of that, which is that we can also learn from the things that get done right. And there are some very successful things that we've done in history that we can learn from. Um, and I write about the, um, for instance, the... Uh, uh, um, I'm blanking here for the plan to save Europe after the war, the Marshall Plan. Forgive me. I'm a little bit too hot or too tired. I, I don't know. Yes, the Marshall Plan is one of the most effective pieces of foreign policy in history, relatively inexpensive, rebuilt European democracies after World War II. And, um, and we can learn a lot from that. But to the main point of your thrust of your question, how do we do a better job of teaching and how do we make this important? It's a really, such an incredibly important question that I've been dealing with for a very long time. I wish I had a simple answer. From the school perspective, let me just say there are two things that are at work right now in education one of which is that we have a school system, an educational system, and it's different in every 50 states because each state makes its own determination. But it's absolutely still driven completely by standardized testing these days. And I've talked to many teachers, not just in the past five years or 10 years, but 20 years, who have said to me, we can't teach history because they want us to focus on getting kids ready for the tests, the standardized tests that come so many times a year. And those standardized tests usually are much more focused on reading comprehension and math as opposed to basic history. So that's one problem, the focus on standardized testing. Every teacher in America that I talk to will tell you that's an issue. Um, the second problem is the fact that because states do dictate this, each in their own state, um, we don't really have a standard of how much history we should learn. Typically in high school, you get a year of American history in most states. I, that certainly was true in New York where I grew up. I don't know what it is in Maryland. So one year of American history at the high school level is not enough as far as I'm concerned. Usually you get freshman year, you get world civilizations and they're, you know, they're still teaching Egypt, Greece, and Rome and, and on from there. And then you get a year. You can't teach American history in a year. It's, not, it's just not possible. They expect some of it to be done in lower grades, but it's, it's, if we think this is important, we need to really spend much more time on teaching history, teaching that old word, civics. Um, and the, um, Sandra Day O'Connor, the retired chief justice, has a program because she thinks this is so important, where she's really advocating the teaching of, of civics education. I believe it's a, it's a largely computer, online-based program called iCivics, and um, I'm very interested to learn more about it. I was just told about it for the first time. So those, that's two things, the way the schools approach. I'm going to add some, something small there, which is that I spend a lot of time talking to teachers around the country. I go into classrooms. I, teach, I speak mostly to teachers who are interested in history and social studies, and it's not because they don't love it and they don't care about it. The teachers I speak to are dedicated and enthusiastic about getting kids interested and excited about history. And I can also tell you from doing these Skypes into classrooms where I talk to a group of whether it's 10 or 150 kids that they are really interested in this stuff. 
and it's a way to keep that interest going. So part of it is the educational system that, that doesn't allow us the time to do it and focuses so much on testing. Um, materials is another uh, issue. Most teachers I know say textbooks. You really just have to throw them away. But that's that's the way the system is built right now. Um, and then we're up, obviously up against pop culture. And, you know, it's a powerful, powerful thing in this country. Um, a lot more people probably watch the Billboard you know, music awards last night than would watch a, a presidential debate. Um, so, you know, I don't know how you change the culture, but um, I'm going to keep trying in my own way. <laughs> Just keep writing about it, talking about it, trying to make the point that this stuff really does matter. And more than it matters, it's interesting. It's instructive. I mean, these are great stories. I think that the stories in history are much more interesting than most of the fiction I read. But thanks for the question. I wish I had a better answer. Yes, sir. Yeah, this is a, a rather sensitive question, but you, you've studied war, and you alluded a little bit to the fact that women are now welcome to the military. And I, I guess from an opportunity standpoint, that, that's a good thing. But having known a little bit about the history of war, I think one can fairly uh, safely say that war is pretty much a unique male provocation and, and male experience, especially the atrocities of war. Could you speak into the mic? Yes. Okay. All right. Especially the atrocities. That's better. I think maybe if you point it up a little bit, you, you can. Yeah. Did you hear my question or should I repeat I, I think when you, when you speak more directly, right. everyone can hear it that way. All right. Thank so you. what I was talking about, I'm sorry, is that it's good that the women are welcome to the military now from an opportunity point of view. But I think if you look at war, I think one can safely say that it's uniquely a male experience, especially the, the atrocities of war. So if you look at that, having studied a war, what does that say about us in terms of humankind, gender differences, and what we can do to try to learn that and, and, and learn from that and, and have better pieces and not more war? Wow. My, my first two immediate reactions to that are um, how much time do we have and gee what a minefield <laughs> yes it is it is a sensitive but important question because we are at this point of uh, this inflection point in the military where we're talking about women being uh, accepted into traditional combat roles which they have been excluded from for a very long time because of you know, our some of the attitudes that you're expressing and some of the attitudes that many people have about the the role of women and the, the role of, you know, the appropriate role of women. Is, are there purely sex differences that we should acknowledge in the military? I think it's, they're really hard questions. I'm going to first argue that, unfortunately, when you come to the notion of atrocities, by far the mass majority throughout history have been uh, inflicted by men, often on women. Um, there's a terrible story today, I'm sure you may have seen it, about um, this group in Nigeria and mass rape there. Well, that happened in Berlin as well. When the Soviet Union comes in, it's a, more, part of the sad story I tell about uh, uh, the battle for Berlin is that hundreds of thousands of ber women in Berlin were, were raped many multiple times, and millions of women in Germany were raped. This was in vengeance 
for the millions who had been raped when the Germans invaded Russia and the Eastern European countries. So that is the ugly brutality of, of war. We've seen, unfortunately, though, uh, instances like Abu Ghraib of, of women participating in such things. So I'm not sure that that clean line is, is there. Um, certainly, Philip Zimbardo's famous Stanford uh, experiment seems to suggest that women were as, as willing and ready to, uh, if you're not familiar with the Stanford experiment, it was basically setting up prisoners and guards and uh, in role play, and it quickly devolved into a very brutal situation that Zimbardo, the professor at Stanford, had to stop, but I don't think he noticed any uh, sexual differences in the in the way people behave. And so there's you know, human behavior, and I, I think in our most idealistic way, way, we'd like to think that women have, um, you know, a, a different inner compass, but I'm not sure that that's always true from history or from psychology. Um, but I think it gets to a, a, a bigger question and a bigger point about how we teach going to war and how we go to war that avoids this kind of brutality. And unfortunately, I'll refer to Philip Zimbardo again because he's written a lot about this, specifically in relation to the fact that he was involved in investigating Milai, and then he was also brought in to discuss the, the Abu Ghraib situation in Iraq. And he made a very, I think, telling comment. He said, we talk about this idea that there are a few bad apples that... Uh, or rotten apples that spoil the barrel. But he says it's not a few rotten apples, it's a rotten barrel. That war itself is what is the, the corrupting thing. And, um, you know, I, I, I wish there were, you know, a really simple and better answer to give you, but I don't think there is, other than the fact that war is a brutal, terrible thing. And so that when we say, is there a good war or a bad peace, there haven't been too many good wars, and we should really be doing a much better job of making sure we don't start them or certainly go into them with full assurance that we're going in for the right reasons. And we're seeing that debate, of course, play out right now about why we went into Iraq. So great question, difficult question. I hope I've answered it to some degree, and um, it's, it's one I would con continue to think about. Yes, sir. Uh, okay. Um, I want to agree with you. I'm a history major in college that um, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> I don't think history is really important. Um, I have two comments to make, if you can comment on these. Um, the first thing, and I used to, I was a peace, peace snick, and I'm still am, um, you know, against the Vietnam War and everything, uh, but, um, and the atomic bomb and all that. But then I started start thinking about the atomic bomb and read a few things. And actually, what many people say is that by dropping the two bombs, or they really just wanted to drop one, but the Japanese didn't believe in it, and they still didn't think we could do it. Uh, we actually saved millions of lives because they would have, at that time, the Japanese were kamikaze all over the place. They were not going to surrender. We would have had to have invaded Japan. It would have cost hundreds of thousands of Americans, and it would have, we would have won the war, but it would have cost like millions of Japanese lives. So by people say that we actually saved 
millions of Japanese lives by dropping the two bombs, which were 70,000 lives each. That was one, that's one comment. The second one is, <coughs> uh, I just finished reading the Patton book, uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly's uh, Killing Patton, which he makes the, the same thing you said about the rapes and all. But he also believes that Patton was our greatest general and that he was thwarted by Eisenhower, who wanted to placate Montgomery and Stalin, and that Patton could have saved thousands of American lives before the Battle of the Bulge even happened, but he was told to back down. And uh, if you could comment on those two sure. comments. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for those questions. Thank you. Uh, again, really, um, <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are comments and questions that whole libraries are written about, so I'll try and address them quickly, but only in a cursory way. Uh, you're absolutely right to the argument that and this is the argument that Truman went to his death saying uh, Truman went to his death believing that dropping the atomic bombs had saved millions of lives both American and Japanese uh, exactly to the point. Um, The cost of because each of those islands in the Pacific each step along the way and we know the names now, Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, Okinawa. Every one of those battles had been so brutal, and the Japanese had shown such a complete willingness to go to their deaths. Um, the fear was that to, to send American troops onto the mainland of Japan was going to be an incredible bloodletting on both sides. So that was the you know, the best case scenario in a humane way for trying to end the war quickly. I will also say this, though, about the atomic bomb. Many of the men who were preparing to drop it didn't really understand radiation yet. They actually thought, and there are notes about this, that more Japanese would be killed just by falling bricks than than anything else. And so the idea that radiation sickness and cancers and the long, long history that this would uh, uh, engender was not a consideration at the time. And, and so certainly you have to give them some sense of credit for their ignorance, I suppose. Um, to the second point, which is about Patton, and there was an argument, and Patton, I think the movies, especially the Patton movie with George C. Scott, which was a terrific movie uh, 40 years ago, uh, makes the case that Patton wants to go charging across the river and and take on the Soviets. Um, There were a million Soviets, Red Army there. I mean, the, the notion of that being something that could have been accomplished, again, without an incredible bloodletting, um, is... Not naive, but it, it just doesn't take into full full account all all the situation that was on the ground. I didn't mean that he was attacking the Soviets. I meant that he, he could have saved many thousands of American lives against the Germans. Well, he wanted to also take on the the Soviets. Uh, that was part of, and so I thought that was what you were alluding to. So so forgive me um, if I misunderstood. Um, Churchill also later co- complained that Eisenhower gave away Eastern Europe. But that had been a decision that had been made much earlier and um, and it was just being played out. That was the decision that was made at Yalta um, by Churchill and Eisenhower, uh, and Roosevelt. Wasn't there the whole, 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 for the Americans to unite with England and Germany 
and attacked Russia. Kennedy's father was in favor of that. Hold on just a minute. I'll, I'll come back to you because some, there are folks who have been waiting at the microphone there, so I'm going to let them go first. Okay. No. I I understand passion about these subjects, but please, sir. Um, as a result of your study of military history, um, and, it, and it does seem to me that military history is less read in this country since the end of the Vietnam War, certainly probably less taught in colleges since the end of the Vietnam War. Are there sort of important, fundamental, big picture lessons about the nature of war, the courses of war, things like that that you think people should be learning from the study of military history but perhaps are not? That's a really, really good question, and it kind of gets to the summing up of, of what I've tried to write about in this book. And, and certainly, the lessons are, in the broadest sense, that you better make sure that you know what you're going to war for. You better make sure that you have a plan for day two. We had a great plan for day one in Iraq. We had no plan for day two. And that's where the real problems began. Setting aside the notion that we shouldn't have gone in the first place, which not surprisingly today now, it seems that not everyone even agrees with that. There are people who are still defending the idea that taking down Saddam Hussein was worth it. Um, I disagree, but that's an, another question. So I think, you know, broad strokes, war is really hard, and it's the unintended consequences that are most damaging, dangerous, and usually not considered, um, especially by politicians who are eager to, you know, send the bombers out. Um, What's interesting is one study of history is that uh, one of the aspects of this study of history is that so many of the former leaders, the generals, like Eisenhower, certainly like Grant, William T. Sherman, uh, I quote him in one, very, very reluctant to think about going to war. They understood what it really meant. In fact, I quote Sherman who said, it's only those who don't hear the shrieks and the blood that cry for more war. So that's a really important lesson, too. Um, I, th I think that it's, what do we teach? We, we, unfortunately, we, we don't spend enough time teaching history, so we don't spend enough time teaching military history, and they're so closely tied together. Um, I hope that you know a book like mine, and there are certainly some other really terrific writers out right now talking about um, the, the role of, the, of military in America, that this becomes a, a bigger public discussion. It's, it certainly isn't much of a discussion during our political campaigns other than usually something frivolous. I think we have time for maybe a couple more. You, you almost just answered my question. Okay. Uh, have we always been successful at maintaining civilian control of our military? The day the president is sworn in, he becomes the <coughs> commander-in-chief. And recently, it seems like the president will pull us into a war and then bring the civilian component, i.e. Congress, along behind him. And that seems to me to be kind of problematic at this point. That's a great question, and I certainly do talk about that in the, in the scope of how we've changed the idea of who fights our wars, what, what we think about the military. 
one of the most interesting aspects of the book from my perspective in, in my research was finding about out how opposed so many of the founding fathers were to a standing army. They really didn't like or trust an army. So this question of civilian control is a really important one from the very beginning. Sam Adams, John Adams, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, I can go down the list, and people who were at, uh, many of them at the uh, convention in 1787, they really thought that the army was the dregs of society, which in a lot of cases they were. That's another story I talk about in this book. Uh, And they thought that Armies throughout history had been the death of republics going back to the time of Rome. So they really were afraid of armies. Washington, of course, led the army. But in one of the most interesting scenes in the book, I think, in the first chapter, Washington goes up to Newburgh, New York, to suppress what is as close as we've come to a military coup in this country. A group of officers in 1783 uh, were really unhappy. They weren't being paid. They weren't being given the pensions they were promised. Congress was dickering and dithering and not keeping promises to soldiers. Wow, they haven't been keeping promises to soldiers for 230 years. What a shocker. Um, So Washington goes up there, and he really, with the power of his, his personal influence, really suppresses what... As probably as close as we've come to a, a, a moment when the military might have done something in this country. But it's very clear at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 that controlling the military is and having civilian controls is going to be built into um, the system very carefully. And one of, the reason, one of the things that that meant was that we didn't really have an army for a very, very long time. When uh, uh, the revolution ended, there were 800 soldiers in the American army. And that's why we didn't have such a good experience fighting some Indian wars in the 1790s. There were no soldiers. There were no trained soldiers. Um, the, the Congress quickly learned that, well, having, having some officers and men around could be useful. Um, but it, there's always been that tension between the president and the Congress, and we're seeing it uh, lived out today, because they created this double-edged sword where the, the, the president is the commander-in-chief and can make sudden moves on his own as executive orders, and, but Congress still has the power to declare war. By the way, how many wars have we had in this country, declared wars? Anybody? Six. Guess? Five. Eleven, if you count separate declarations during World War II against places like Bulgaria and Romania. Which, but five declarations of war in over 230 years of, of the Republic. Pretty remarkable, given the fact that we've been fighting for most of those 230 years, but only five times declared a war. Congress has always been fairly complacent about letting the president make that decision and then reacting to it afterwards. Um, usually going along and then only later uh, trying to assert itself. And we're seeing very, very little debate over pretty serious issues about uh, congressional control over the military right now. So it's, a, um, it's never been a, a threat in that sense, but it's always been part of the problem of 
less about the civilian control as who's really making the decisions, and the president certainly has been taking, taking the lead through most of our history. Yes, sir. Uh, just a quick comment and a question. Um, I think um, regarding the question about getting young people engaged with history, I think if people like us in this room can get young kids out to these sites to um, you know, go in the museum and work with interactive exhibits, to you know, see battle reenactments, to go on hiking trails in national parks, I think that's a good way to also to, um, to help engage kids with history. I second the motion. To create context. So it was a very good question you asked. Um, and a quick question for you. I'm very interested in process. And I just wonder to what extent uh, with your books have you worked with primary sources and which <coughs> books did you find you were using primary sources and original documents the most to tell the story? Oh, I'd love to talk about this question, especially when I go and visit kids in schools or talk to kids in schools. Um, to your first point and your first comment, I couldn't agree more. I, um, to my wife's um, probably not great glee, love to go to every historic place I pass by. I can't, can't help myself. But that's part of the way I, I grew up. So um, she usually likes most of them too, but... Um, but at any rate, I do agree that getting kids out to places where they see, smell, feel, and touch history is absolutely the key to getting them engaged. Um, on that note, I have to tell you a story. I was, we were up in Plymouth um, touring the replica of the Mayflower a few years ago. And a school group was wandering through, and two boys, they must have been maybe first graders or second graders. Now, Joanne was standing beside me, and she's chewing some Wrigley's. And the two boys are standing there in the bottom of the boat, and they say, hmm, the pilgrims had gum. <laughs> One of those classic moments that you never forget. They smelled that gum, and they knew that the pilgrims had gum. So uh, that was a favorite moment. But yesterday, I was uh, to the point of getting kids out and seeing places. I, I, I think this is so crucial. I tell it to parents and teachers all the time when they ask me, what do I do? Well, get your kids out of the classroom, get them away from the TV, and go to these places. See history, smell it, touch it, feel it. Yesterday, I spent a really extraordinary afternoon, um, not far from here, an hour and a half, at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. It's at Fort, um, the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, they have uh, a walk, and yesterday was Heritage Days, Heritage Weekend, so they had a lot of reenactors there and things going on. What a fascinating experience. I was like the kid in the candy store there. You actually walk through, uh, uh, you could walk through the history of America through battle sites and war sites. So I spoke to two British fusiliers who were on readout number 10, which is the chapter one in my book, and I talked to a tank gunner from World War II, and I talked to a woman who was from the Salvation Army who was making donuts in France in, uh, in 1917. And, you know, there were a lot of kids there, uh, not as many as I would have wished to see, but what a great experience to talk to those reenactors, and these people are, um, they don't just pretend they're somebody in costume, like an actor playing a role, they become these people in many cases. Uh, many of them, especially the Civil War reenactors, get to a level of obsessiveness sometimes, but very often they're descendants of, of uh, soldiers, and they have the letters, and they, have, they might have their great-great-great-great-grandfather's glasses or something. So it's extraordinary to get that human side of the story. And one of the things they, they even say at the um, Army 
Heritage Center is that they're telling soldiers' stories, and I'm so happy to see that that's the way they they focus on it. It's not about generals making maneuvers and you know armies riding across landscapes. It's really about what it's like to be a guy. And it was pouring rain yesterday, and there was some really you know, it was mud. It was really like war. Uh, 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 what what it must have been like to be in some of those camps. So, um, uh, I, uh, not an experience I've ever had, but um, was it was quite extraordinary. So I, I agree with you completely that doing it through um, that hands-on experience is is crucial to the. What was your second point? I might have. Oh, yes, research. This is a really important one because they actually have a lot of stuff. You can you can go to the Army College there and see letters from the Revolution. They, they've they got it, and they, they're on display, and you can see some of these things. Um, my research is uh, kind of threefold. I'll go through it quickly because we're running up against the clock. Um, just as I like to go and visit these places for the fun of them, uh, fun of it, going to places is always important to me as a writer to get a sense of the place. And I always find something that is unexpected. Very quick story. I went down to St. Augustine in Florida a few years ago researching the Spanish in America because that was left out of my school books. Um, discovered that there were French pilgrims in Florida 50 years before the Mayflower sailed. Who knew? Um, I ended up writing the story uh, a story about the French pilgrims in Florida in one of my books called America's Hidden History. They came to America for the same reasons the pilgrims did uh, 50 years before. They had the good sense to go to Florida in June instead of Massachusetts in December. Um, So they were there for about a year. The Spanish figure it out, send over a fleet, which is why there is a St. Augustine. The fleet uh, drops off an army. The army goes and wipes out the French. There is a place called Fort Matanzas right near St. Augustine. Matanzas means slaughters in Spanish. This was where hundreds of French soldiers and sailors were put to death by the Spanish, not because they were French, but because they were Lutheran, which was the French word for Protestant. So I learned that the first encounter between two European nations in what becomes becomes the United States of America is a religious bloodbath. What story is more important for our time? And so that's um, that's the kind of hidden history I like to find by actually going to the places. Then there are a lot of primary sources, as you say. I do a lot of secondary source work. I quote from a lot of other wonderful writers who have done a lot of the, the research. Um, but the Internet has also obviously opened up primary sources in a way that never were before. So you can go into libraries that once you had to go and sit in a library and they give you a pair of white gloves because you weren't allowed to touch things with your own hands, um, now you can see it all online. So um, visiting, first-hand visits, second-hand sources, and then primary documents are my three um, chief, chief sources of information for, for the compiling I do and many, many, many books, which I include in my bibliography. So I think that my time is up. I want to thank you all for coming and for your questions and for listening and your interest in this very, very important subject. So thank you very much.